And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, we have a few kids still with us here in the room, and they can stay if they'd like, but if they'd like to go to children's ministry now, they're dismissed to go. As they're heading out, I want to confess to you, I have been a part of a few Christmas debates, and you may have had this Christmas debate with some people, but it's about which is the best version of the Christmas carol. Now, if I say that to you, you may have one that comes to mind, or you may be thinking, yeah, I don't know. And you'll probably betray something about your sort of generational allegiance based on how you answer that. Thank you very much, Ryan, for putting that in there and for stealing my thunder, because I have to say, I think that the Muppets is the best version of the Christmas Carol out there. Now, afterwards... I recognize I have just, if I was like at the door and you were on your way out, that's the one thing you're going to want to comment about is that I got that wrong. And that's okay. That's okay. But I will tell you that I think my answer has scriptural basis. I can back up from the Bible why the Muppets Christmas Carol is better. And that's because things that shouldn't sing, sing. Or at least Jesus said, did you see how this passage ended? There is heavenly praise going on on earth. Something that rarely happens. Let me just ask, last time you opened up your news app, or last time you opened up the newspaper, last time you turned on the TV to watch the evening news, or the last time you went online to see what was going on. How much was the world talking about what God did and the credit he should get? It's nowhere, is it? The most significant player and actor in human history is the Lord over all creation. And day by day by day by day, he gets no credit. In fact, it's more newsworthy when people try to come up with a reason that he doesn't belong in our story. It's more newsworthy when people try to explain our past without reference to God and what he's done. But this moment in history is one moment where people were getting it right. Now, there are other moments where it's happened, but this is one of them. And did you see what the religious leaders did? They said, stop it. Stop appropriately giving credit to the God you ought to be worshiping. Now, throughout the story of the Gospels, oftentimes the religious leaders really don't come across in a very good light. 
They've got some bad moments. But frankly, on Palm Sunday, this is one of their worst. And Jesus said, the Muppet Christmas Carol is best. Why? Because he said, if people wouldn't actually be singing, if the leaders had their way and people were silenced, what would happen? Little rocks would form little mouths. And just like in the Muppet Christmas Carol, they'd start singing about the arrival of Jesus. Now, it's ridiculous to consider. But there's something so tragic about this moment that takes place. The reality, though, is we get a part of this, don't we? We all want to be excited about something. It doesn't really matter your sphere. If you're into entertainment, you may have been thrilled about the Oscars or at least interested in what happened during the Oscars. Maybe the Grammys was more your thing. Maybe the Super Bowl has already been the highlight of your year. Maybe it's something else coming up. Maybe you're looking forward to the midterm elections. It doesn't matter kind of what your thing is. There's something you want to get excited about. And that's because no matter kind of what your thing is, we want excitement. We want to understand passion. We want to understand bravery and justice. And the reality is that at this moment, riding into Jerusalem was the epitome of everything that humanity has ever longed for. No one was ever more bold or courageous than Jesus. No one ever presented better answers. No one was ever a more integrous example. Jesus is ultimately the joy of every longing of every human heart. And he was arriving to do what he had come to do. And the religious, religious leaders said, no, we need to pay attention somewhere else. Guys, this is one of their worst moments. And I want us to pay attention to what happens here in this story so that we don't live a week like theirs. I don't want you, no matter what this last week has been like, I don't want you to have another week where you walk through it and have ample opportunity to give God credit for what's going on in your world, in your story, and all around you. And instead of taking the crowd's or instead of joining what the rocks would have done, you take the perspective of the leaders and say, this is a good time for me to be quiet. And I think the best way is for us to just understand a little bit more who Jesus really is. So if you've got your bulletins, you see the three points that are there. My first point is we go all the way back to the beginning here in verse 28, and we see that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over all creation. Listen again to the way Luke tells the story. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near at the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Now, pausing for a second, if you're the disciples, you know exactly what you ought to do next. Don't get that beast. We want this to be a noteworthy moment. We want Jesus to, in his arrival, seem to, you know, kind of give off the actual air that he's worthy of. Someone who's regal, someone who's in charge. You know the worst way to do that? Do what I did to my son, Zach. 
Back in Pennsylvania, we used to live next to a guy two doors down who had a farm. And on his farm, he had these little mini horses. And so we were kind of, you know, we had little kids at that time, and Zach was young. He was the oldest of ours, but all of ours were pretty young. And we were over one day just kind of feeding some things to the horses. And my neighbor said, who owned the horses, said, hey, would Zach like to ride one of them? And I thought, that's a great idea. So I, without any study, without any preparation, without asking another question, decided, yes, I'm going to take my young vulnerable son, and I'm going to put him on the back of this animal. Well, it turns out that these horses had kind of fought with each other a little bit, and so one of them had been nipping at the other, and that was the one I decided to set Zach on the back of, was the one who had a wound right where his heel would hit if Zach were to try and grip the animal, which is exactly what happened at that moment. And Zach doesn't remember this because of the massive concussion he got afterwards. <laughs> I don't think it was that bad. But literally, one of the worst moments in parenting history, at least in the lander lore, is when dad put his son on an animal without a saddle, without any preparation, and with really out any knowledge for Zach of what was about to happen. And Zach's foot hit that wound, and the animal took off. Zach bounced like three times, landed. I looked around like, I sure hope Christine didn't see this. She was standing next to me, so she did, of course. I have zero control over that animal. And Jesus says, go get a young colt on which no one has ever ridden And his instructions are then, (laughs) untie it and bring it here. This makes no sense. As I've got a geriatric dog. And every morning when he goes out into the yard without a leash on, I I am just reminded how much I'm not in charge of nature. He's not fast. He can't really go that far. But every time I call him, I'm like, Dawson, hey, come on back in. All right, come on back in. You could almost probably wake up my neighbors to me yelling out into the yard, Dawson, come here. Dawson, come here. Because it's part of the routine. Darren has no control over his 10-year-old arthritic dog. (laughs) Jesus has absolute control over an animal that should never submit to a rider. Why? Because he made it. Right in the very beginning of the story, Jesus says, I want you to get me a vehicle that should not transport me well into the city, and I'm going to, through the process of my riding it in, make a demonstration that I am the one who is different than anyone who's ever ridden into this city before. This thing we did with the palms, this was actually kind of traditional. When a new king would come into the city, the inhabitants of that city had to figure out what their disposition to their new military leader was going to be. Every time Jerusalem had been conquered, and going back to the time when David originally conquered it from the Jebusites, every time someone would come in, 
you had to figure out how are we going to relate to this new person. So when Absalom rebelled against David, who was the established leader after David had taken it over, all the people had to figure out how are we going to relate to this king who's riding in. And when David rode in, he rode in on a horse. And when Absalom rode in, he rode in on a horse. And all the people welcomed him much like our kids would have done. Taking down cloaks, laying them on the road. Sort of a gentlemanly thing to do. Oh, my lady, this is muddy. Here, let me help you. It's not much of anything other than an odd gesture. But it's a statement, isn't it? We want you here. That had happened in Jerusalem's history before, but never like this. Because the one who was riding in was different than anyone who had ever come. He wasn't just different because he could ride on a donkey that had never been ridden on. He was also different because he knew exactly the way this was going to lay out. He said, when you do this, people might ask you what's going on. See that in verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so what happens? Verse 32, everything Jesus said, even though he hadn't been there, was exactly the way he said it was going to be. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told him. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. J.C. Ryle, in talking about this passage, said, he speaks, meaning Jesus, as one to whom all things are naked and open. In fact, that's the way the author of Hebrews described Jesus. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. This is towards the end of, end of Jesus' three-year ministry, but this isn't the first time that Jesus has ever interacted with anybody like this. All the way beginning in Luke chapter 6, Luke writes about Jesus talking to people, and he says he knew exactly what they were thinking. It's the same thing that comes out of John chapter 2. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's an odd way for the story to begin. But the reason we're just kind of chewing on this for a little bit is because I want you to see the one who's coming into this story is unlike anyone you've ever met in your entire life. There are people who have probably impressed you with their character. They've more or less been faithful. Nothing compared to Jesus. There are smart people you've met throughout your life, probably instructors, probably some, you know, sort of uh, kind of famous figures out there. There are people you've studied from, people you've learned from, and they can't hold a candle to who Jesus is. In character, power, learning, and example, there's no one like Jesus. No one has ever acted or fulfilled what they said they were going to do like Jesus because Jesus is the only one who existed before any of this was made. He's the sovereign Lord over all of our creation. So 
the story continues, and we see another thing that I want you to not miss about Jesus. Not only is he the sovereign Lord over creation, he is the expected champion of our freedom. Look in verse 35 and listen along. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those words, as we read them, they're in quotes. But they ought to be sort of, quote, inside quotes. And that's because of the passage that Olivia read. Anybody who knows this passage and knows the Old Testament is going to say, these guys are quoting from Psalm 118. It's not the only place that we see God acting as Savior. In fact, it's very difficult to read the Old Testament without seeing how that story, any one individual story, is related to the way that God saves his people. But Psalm 118 is probably one of the most sort of common refrains about saving. Just like Brad mentioned, the word Hosanna that's being yelled at the beginning of the triumphal entry is just a way of saying, oh, save us. The Savior had come, and this phrase, Hosanna, is thrown out there because of its attachment to what you see there in verse 38. This phrase, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What's interesting, though, is what else Olivia read from Psalm 118. It isn't just this idea of, uh, you know, it, it isn't just the idea of wanting to come and be saved. It's the fact that when God comes to save, he's doing something that's very, not just military, but priestly. Did you hear that at the, at the end of the passage she read there in verse 27? It was talking about God coming and saving us. And it seems like then the next thing it should talk about with some degree of specificity is take out your sword and conquer your enemies. Take that beast you're riding on and trample on the faces of those that have oppressed us. God, come on, beat up our enemies and deliver your people. But that's not where the psalm goes. Instead, it says, oh, we are in trouble. Oh, come save us. Now take the sacrifice and put it on the altar. It's an odd connection, isn't it? If there was anybody you were going to point to in Israel's history and say, this would be the savior, the priests would not have been those guys. When a soldier gets dressed up, they're strapping on weapons. They're putting on armor. When a priest gets dressed up, he's, he's sort of immobilizing himself in layer upon layer of symbolic attire so that people understand this is not a fighter. This is a lawyer. You know how a lawyer works, right? You should never represent yourself. That's a bad idea in court because you don't understand how the system works. 
So if you're being accused, you need somebody who understands the system to stand there on your behalf. And that's what the priests did. Layer upon layer of what they wore, all the way down to the piece of fabric that was right up against their skin, was to represent that what they were doing was to stand in the gap of sinful people. So when Psalm 118 is written, it says, we're in trouble. God, would you come save us? Bind up the the sacrifice and put it on the altar. Listen to this other phrase that comes from it. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Does it sound like warrior language to you? Here's here's a piece of homework. Open up to Psalm 118 sometime this week. Read it through. And make note of the weird metaphors that all get mixed up in the middle of it. I'm in trouble and I need help. We should do something about the sacrifice. Here now we're talking about sort of like these these building metaphors of gates and cornerstones and and builders and and foundational work. It's, It's an interesting psalm. And it's the basis of what everybody's yelling. But essentially, they're nailing it with this moment. Because when they're quoting a psalm that says, take a sacrifice and put it on the altar, that's exactly what this week is starting to do. The one who's going to come to save them is the one who's going to be slain for them. The one who's going to come and deliver them from the problems that they have is ultimately going to be the one who's going to take the biggest problem that they have and have it crush him to his very core. And in doing that, he provides the foundation for the rest of us to build our lives on. He literally becomes the cornerstone on which God is going to build the rest of his kingdom. So take time. Reread Psalm 118 and look at the way that Jesus fulfills it. It's amazing, though, what happens next. It's sadly tragic what happens next. Listen to verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Guys, we could, like I'm saying, we could preach an entire sermon series just on that one verse and what it is that the crowds are recognizing about who Jesus is. But let me take a moment and transfer you to something that we saw a long while ago when we were in Revelation. You guys remember Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5? One, two, and three, John meets Jesus, and then Jesus addresses the church. And then Jesus, after kind of diagnosing the state of his gathered body in these these seven churches, brings John up to heaven and gives him a glimpse of what's going on. It's so bright that John keeps using all the wrong words, all the same words, but it's really hard for him to describe the glory of heaven. There are creatures there he can't even identify with human language. And so he's describing what they're like. But essentially he's saying, guys, the brightness of this place, you've never seen anything like it. Fire or gleaming metal or molten lava, 
nothing to compare. The creatures of heaven, trust me, you've never met anyone or ever seen an animal anything like what is going on in heaven. Why? Because the one at the center of heaven is unlike anything that's going on. And so three times the, the, the chorus of heaven cries out, you are worthy. And some of the Pharisees, verse 39, in the crowd said to him, rebuke your disciples. Can you imagine one of these Pharisees entering into heaven in Revelation 4 or 5, where there is unmatched glory and undescribable creatures, all of whom are giving glory to God, and one of the Pharisees gets in the way and says, hey, you guys should stop this. That's literally the moment that happens right here on the streets leading up to Jerusalem. Praise is happening as it ought to. Jesus is getting credit the way he deserves to. And one of the religious leaders says, this is a really bad idea. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Romans chapter 8, if you remember this text. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation, these stones Jesus is talking about were subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Romans is just Paul putting more articulate language to what Jesus is saying. I'm entering in for the sole purpose of doing what I came to the earth to do. And the crowds are recognizing it. Not fully, they don't understand everything that's going to happen. But they are at least giving me credit for what I'm about to do. And you don't understand this, teachers. There is something going on that if these people were to be quiet, this groaning creation would have to explode and say, no, let him go. We need this to happen. Sin has ravaged our world for far too long. And we need a savior, not who's just going to deliver this city, but who's going to deliver the whole planet, this city sits on. Daryl Brock said it this way, inanimate objects have a better perception of what God is doing than the people that he came to save. What a statement of what's happening at this very moment. Inanimate objects have a better perception of what God is doing than the people that he came to save. Church, there is a longing inside of you for God to show up in your world just like he's doing at this moment right now. One of the things we should not be angry about, but that we should mourn in our lives and in others is that we are so easily satisfied for the things that ultimately are so disappointing and so broken. Hardwired into our being is a tuned-in longing for God, 
a longing that this world opposes, but they so desperately need. And let me ask you the question. What happens in you when you touch that brokenness in our world? It is everywhere, guys. People giving credit and throwing all their energy and their lives after something that just doesn't matter. It's happening all the time. It leads people to make all the wrong conclusions about how life ought to work. It's why practically every solution, even the ones that we can get behind that the world puts out there, they're half-baked at best. Because this brokenness is baked into the very fabric of everything you live in and breathe and touch all the way down, Jesus says, to rocks that are begging to be released from the curse of sin. I get that sometimes it makes us angry. I feel it sometimes too. But let me remind you from the third thing we see about Jesus that I'm not sure anger is always the most redemptive quality. Because Jesus is the sovereign Lord over creation. He's the long-awaited champion of our freedom. And lastly, though, he's the compassionate author of peace. Listen to what happens next. When he drew near, verse 41, and saw the city, he wept over it. There's more to say, but this is so different than me. I just have to confess right out of the gate. Guys, when I don't get credit for the tiniest of little things that I've ever done, you know how angry I can get sometimes? And frankly, some of you do because you've been around me when I've been angry. It's concerning to me that I would feel so bothered when other people don't recognize how fill-in-the-blank Darren is. You understand how microscopic Even in a moment, I might be even close to right. And 99% of the time, I'm wrong. But even in a moment where I might be close to right, how microscopic that injustice is in my life compared to what we just read about in this story. The Lord of creation has been told he should not be given credit for what he's done and what he's about to do. He said, if I tell these people to be quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out in Muppet-like fashion. Who ought be more angry than Jesus right now? Who ought to be more filled with sort of a righteous indignation than Jesus? And there are moments in the story that he is, but this isn't one of them. He sees the city and he weeps over it. Because he he knew more than just that the cult was going to be there. He knew something far more tragic was about to befall the city he was entering into. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. I wish 
I could say for the sake of those literally in attendance with Jesus right now, that that was metaphorical, but it, it so wasn't. Jesus isn't using sort of intense language to describe something just as an analogy. Jesus is entering into a city that's about to get leveled to the ground. 70 AD, a rebellion will be put down. And Josephus says this about some of the disaster that befalls Jerusalem as a result of the Roman fury upon the city. He said, yes, yet, sorry, was this misery itself more than the disorder For one would have thought that the hill itself on which the temple stood was seething hot, as full of fire on every part of it, that the blood was in larger quantity than the fire, and the slain more in number than those who slew them. For the ground did nowhere appear visible for the dead bodies that lay on it. Now, it is true, sometimes as a historian, Josephus could be a little bit expressive, maybe a little bit more than a normal historian. And it is true that as a Jewish historian, he had a bit of a bias in writing his story, but he still wrote something that literally happened. This isn't him sort of inventing fiction. Josephus is telling in hindsight what Jesus foresaw that the city of the temple of the people of God, the city of David, that place that David long ago to unite the empire took from the Jebusites and renamed as his place, both for his residence and for the residence of the Lord later established by his son. The one place was ripped to the ground, so that as Jesus described it, he said, they will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. I could have given you quote after quote from Josephus of how accurate that prophecy was really going to be in the life and the tragedy of Jerusalem. And at some point you have to ask, Why? Isn't Jerusalem God's like crowning jewel? Isn't this the place that God reveres above everything else? Why would he let this happen? Look at the end of verse 44. He says why. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. When Jesus says something happens because something else, we can trust it. Frankly, I think we, as non-omniscient people, I think we use because way too often. (laughs) I'll just tell you this. When you try to explain somebody else's motives, and you say, I know exactly why they did that. (laughs) You're so stupid. I've got to be honest. That might be 10% of their motivation. But when you try to sum up that you know exactly what's going on in somebody's world, and I can tell you, man, 95% of marital conflicts or or arguments between good friends usually have this mistake being made in the middle of them. I know exactly why he did that. I know exactly what she was thinking. Oh, she did that, and it's because she just likes attention. Well, maybe she does a little bit, probably not more than you do. 
But you really think you can see into somebody else's world and understand exactly what's going on in their mind and their soul and their heart. You can tell me what's motivating them all the time. No, you can't. You're not that good. You're not omniscient. You barely know what's going on in your world. But when Jesus says because, he gets it right 100% of the time. He says this city is going to be leveled. It's not just going to be the warriors that are going to be dying. It's going to be the little babies and the moms. It's going to be the kids. The equivalent of the ones who marched around us with palms. They'll be dead at the end of this story. Why would that happen? Within a lifetime of some of those who are here? It's because when Jesus showed up in the world, they misunderstood what he was doing there. Church, do you see the application? Do you understand the weight, the significance of the news that you hold, that the gospel, the most powerful force in the world, has been handed over to you because you know why Jesus came. And all around you are people facing a far more tragic end than the one Jesus is describing here. People will have eternal consequences for their unbelief because they misdiagnose why Jesus arrived. And we get angry because they don't disagree, or because they disagree with us. We get angry because we get slandered somewhat in the process. Can we just take the argument from the the heights we can't fathom of what Jesus ought to have been treated like and the way he was entreated instead and see that if he could be compassionate to those who were disrespecting him, how much more ought that just characterize the way that we live? Moms, you can be a little more sympathetic to your rebellious kids. Even the ones who were up all night last night. This is why God says the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness that God requires. It's why he describes the way that you came to him by saying it's the kindness of God that led us to repentance. Guys, there's a lot we can take out of this. There's a lot of ways we ought to respect Jesus as the sovereign Lord over creation. There's a lot of ways that we, when we think about what binds us up, ought to be looking, him to, looking to him for the freedom that he provides for us. But I think the thing that I just want to confess is grabbing me the most is the difference between me and my self-righteous indignation and Jesus and his endless compassion. And I'll say this, watching the way he's come in, I want to be more like the one who brings peace and hope, and I want to bring peace and hope into other people's lives. And if I need to be misunderstood, then so be it. And if I need to be forgotten and disrespected, then so be it. Because the Bible isn't my story. It's his, and I just get to proclaim it. I can't tell you exactly how this story ought to impact you. It might be that you notice a little bit of anger inside you. 
and you've got to watch out for it. It might be that you have been kind of living your life without giving much regard to Jesus. Whatever it is, I'd encourage you, bring somebody else into your story a little bit. Ask them for some help. But as well, we've given you these devotionals so that each day this week, from Palm Sunday through Resurrection Sunday, you can think about what Jesus does. Most of the readings that are in there, and you can get them either online or you can just see the references that are there. You can open up your paper Bible and read them along. Most of them shouldn't take you much longer than about 20 minutes. But I'll say the times that I've done this, and I put it together, I mean, I used other people's resources. I didn't look every little bit of this up. But the time that I've gone over what I kind of constructed, it's been some of the most transformative uh, ways that God has shaped me, is just looking again at how Jesus interacted with the people who would kill him and still seeing the love that drew me to him in the first place. I hope you're similarly kind of impacted. What we're going to do is we're going to sing some songs. Keith's going to lead us in taking communion together, and then I'm going to come back up and introduce the celebration of baptism. So let's pray while the worship team comes back up on the stage to lead us. Father, I thank you for the fact that we can, we can honestly be diagnosed by your word, and we can be aware kind of every time we open up your word that we're not just reading a history book, We're not reading somebody else's philosophy, but we're being addressed by the living God through his living word. And so I pray, Father, for us as a church, I pray that you'd shape us to be more responsive to Jesus and more compassionate like Jesus. Thank you for sending him, and I pray, Lord, transform us as we watch him this week. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.